Welcome to episode 33 of Coffee and Circuses. On this week's show, I'm joined by May Musier, who works for Oxford University's Knowledge Exchange and Impact Team. This episode was recorded at the joint FIEC and CA conference in London a couple of weeks ago, at which May won the Classical Association Prize for Outreach, for which I know many people will agree she was a very deserving winner. So naturally on today's show, we're talking a lot about outreach, particularly the project May has recently been working on, concerning a group of manuscripts from Eritrea and Ethiopia, which includes a set of Gospels from the 4th century. The striking thing about these manuscripts is that while they were produced in a local style, the images and language find parallels in the Roman world. As May discusses, it's objects such as these that show how interconnected the ancient world was. The Roman and Greek worlds didn't exist in a bubble, but were exchanging knowledge and crafts with China, India and sub-Saharan Africa. And it's by demonstrating its interconnectivity that we can also bring the study of the classical world to a wider audience and help attract a more diverse range of people to the subject. As May says, it feels like we're moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot of work still to do. We're also delving into May's own backstory, how she left Eritrea in the 80s during the Civil War, then spent four years in the Sudan before coming to London. She reflects on how spending time at the library after school ignited her love for the ancient world, and how her years at Swansea had a big impact on her. Also, we chat about her new hobby, skateboarding, and all the culture that surrounds it, including how in some ways it's quite similar to classics. But then again, didn't someone once say... The Elysium is a half of heaven. You skateboard? <laughs> hey, that's where Chris comes into it, yeah. So... Yeah, go for it, Kevin. <laughs> so, um... Yes, I... <laughs> oh, how did it start? Well, um, I, when I finished my uh, thesis, um, I was doing it part-time for over seven years um, whilst working full-time. And there were many things that I haven't done in my life which were sort of adventure-seeking in some ways. And then I thought, Do you know what, I'm going to try and learn a new skill. And my partner... Chris um, skateboards and uh, he not only skateboards, he skis, he surfs, and, um, but um, skateboarding his um, hobby. Um, and I thought, do you know what, um, let me give this a go. However, it started off as more of a dare, okay. and then <laughs> thinking, hmm, okay, I need to actually um, commit to this. Um, and there's no way of getting out of it once I've said I will do it. Um, so that's how it started. And I started this um, beginning of this year. And I've had quite a few sort of lessons. Is it just, just skating like straight down on the street or whatever? Or is this like proper like a... trying the half pipe? And... <laughs> is that, or is that it? Going down a ramp. Uh, yes, there's quite a few sort of um, oh, difficult difficult um, uh, uh, skills um, to try and master and um, I live in Oxford and there is a skate park there, the uh, Oxford uh, Wills Project and one of the great things that they're doing now is to try and get uh, more females to um, skate Um, and one of the female skaters, uh, Laura Green um, was setting up for the first time lessons for um, female skaters, beginners um, as well as um, female BMXs uh, so that the place could be truly inclusive and so 
in a world where, say, skating is dominated by male, uh, it's quite hard to, you know, sort of enter that as a female. Uh, so, um, so this is a, a sort of relatively new kind of wave, but um, there's been plenty of um, female skaters that have been trailblazers, but not on a kind of ground level. Yeah, I was just thinking yeah. back to when I was younger. Yeah. I never really skateboarded when I was younger, but mm. I played a lot of Tony Hawk on uh, <laughs> PlayStation. Yes. And, and now you yeah, say that, well, yeah. I don't think there was a single female character. Exactly, on it at all, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, what I found quite interesting is that. Um, there are some similarities between the skateboarding um, uh, culture and classics. Um, oh, yeah. In, in a sense that um, both spaces tend to have started from somewhere very traditional in terms of um, uh, gender. Um, and, you know, the sort of uh, progressive uh, nature that has, um, in a way, um, emerged... Um, and is emerging, I recognise that in um, classics too, the, the fact that it has to take a look at itself um, and uh, think about inclusivity and diversity. Mm. Uh, in a sense, skateboarding has, had to, has to think about that too and had, uh, you know, to think about that. Um, so in some ways, uh, my partner has been learning more about classics and I've been learning more about skateboarding and seen some kind of links between the two. Wow, that's a heck yeah. of a kind of synergy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So um, uh, our, um, my uh, stepkids um, skate as well, so it's been nice to do it as a family. But um, the, it's so much easier for the kids to learn uh, rather than for a 38-year-old mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, learning a new skill. It's one of those things I'd like to have, have a balance of like a three-legged rhinoceros. Exactly. Like, when I tried to do ice skating, it went yeah. terribly. Yeah, <laughs> just, that sort of thing, I'm just like... Oh, I've oh, had oh, a few oh. slams and now I go into work and um, you know sort of you know serious work and there's a few scars and yeah. you know scrapes and, say, and I'm hobbling along and they say what have you done to yourself oh skating <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> which makes me sound like really hardcore and <laughs> not. I really am not but you know I, I think it's fun um, uh, and learning about the culture, it's actually incredibly interesting of how it emerged and um, the sort of um, uh, the music and the clothing, the identity uh, has been a real learning curve. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that uh, I didn't quite imagine it to go there in terms of talking about it. But it actually works really well in terms of dovetailing into to what brings you here now. We were at the uh, mm-hmm. CA slash the FIEC. Exactly. I can never yes. say it quite. Right. <laughs> um, but as we were discussing on the on the way up here, you mm. you're involved in quite a lot of things that are going on across these few days of the conference because you yes. were in, you were on the panel at the opening night for the classics in twenty first century. I yeah. certainly was. I find myself, you know saying yes to quite a lot of things and um, (laughs) (laughs) and this year the conference seems to be um, of a different variety in a sense that it's um, so much bigger because Mm. it's joining up with FIAC so the CA is normally in April and it's um, slightly smaller um, delegations Um, and whilst um, uh, the FIAC is much larger and then this year it's super super large and um, I suppose over the last few years there's been more sort of as I said um, 
need to be more inclusive and diverse in you know in the kind of talks that we give as well as the scholarships um, and try to be representative in the you know sort of seminars and conferences that we go to and so f- for the first time really I feel there's a kind of different energy really positive energy um, that you're bringing people with you rather than you know trying to battle different um, factions in order to get a message across you know where some people may resist that message about change and being progressive and what and that was the feeling that I had in the panel on the Thursday night um, being you know sort of in front of 180 people and you know the, the, it was mostly mostly white audience yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> however the questions that arose from the you know during the Q&A felt uh, those sort of questions wouldn't have been asked if it was 20 years ago and so I think we provided a, a platform where you can ask um, questions that aren't um, going to um, upset anyone or um, you know cause controversy or you know um, because we felt that you know we were all being honest um, and also incredibly respectful of each other. Now the panel itself was a all-female panel, and again, that is uh, one of the things that um, the organisers wanted to do was to promote um, a more sort of uh, equal representation. And in order to have, and this is in anything, it's not just about classes. In order to have equal representation, you will need, in some ways, to present an all-female space um, in order to bring it to um, equality um, with the with the men. And so I think the organisers have really worked hard to provide incredibly diverse panels. Um, there's 87 panels um, that are happening at, at the conference, but also on a range and broad subject. So, you know, you've got classics in Japan and China and, uh, uh, you know, in Iraq and South America and the US and um, in African countries and Zimbabwe and so forth. So it's it feels like we're, you know, we're turning um, around the corner. It's a turning point. Um, and, you know, I presented on um, the... Ethiopian Eritrean project that I'm working on now with the Bodleian Library and um, libraries and the um, Faculty of Classics in Oxford, um, and I presented that as a kind of practical case study of how we can um, change and diversify classics by working with um, the institution, uh, the, you know, the university um, through um, things like knowledge exchange and impact, which is a big kind of deal at the moment for HG institutions in order to meet um, the uh, requirements of um, government funding uh, is to showcase um, knowledge exchange activities um, and how classes can be part of that conversation to say, look, you know, we're doing our research, this world-class, world-leading research, um, and it's having a massive impact on our society and you know whether that's local regional or international um, and we don't we do not do our research in isolation uh, it has to have some sort of impact in the our local environment um, but it's it's in a slightly 
different way this time round with the knowledge exchange because you are also getting something back from the individuals and groups and organisations that you work with. Um, and so that was something um, I wanted to highlight in the um, recent project that I've been doing with the Ethiopian Eritrean community that actually um, our researchers were getting valuable information um, that will inform their research from um, you know, informed uh, religious leaders and um, community leaders and Ethiopian and Eritrean scholars that knew the texts incredibly well. Um, so it was a two-way uh, uh, system rather than the university imparting their knowledge to you know these poor communities mm. you know, so so that's what I wanted to bring to the panel yesterday was it Thursday it, it's Saturday today <laughs> <laughs> you know so much going on and to find uh, you know uh, a new way or not just a new way but perhaps um, a practical way of uh, doing what we're saying you know, there's no point just having the conversations and dialogues about how classes can be diverse. You've got to show how mm. this could be done, um, and this could be done in a myriad of ways. And one of the ways that I explained is using a, um, uh, a sort of government policy um, that impacts universities through the knowledge exchange framework. So that's that's how we started. And then yesterday was the uh, public engagement with research where um, I spent with Emma Bridges and Zena who've been organising um, those workshops and using that project to go into a bit more detail of what we did over the last few years of truly um, making sure that other cultures besides... Greeks and Romans were represented and that they were truly, um, you know, diverse civilizations uh, going on within that pool, that Mediterranean pool, and that we can't ignore um, the influence of other cultures onto uh, Greece and Rome. Because mm. yeah. the manuscripts in question that you're talking about, mm. when when do they date it? Or just to kind of give a little bit of background sure, on what they are. Yeah, of course. Because they're kind of... As you were saying to me yesterday, they mm. are, they're what we, I suppose, refer to as late antique. That's that right, kind of... yes, that's right. So um, the manuscripts that we that I was talking about were um, firstly the Garima Gospels. Uh, so these are now considered the oldest surviving manuscripts that were found in the Ethiopian highlands. Well, you know, they were sort of... Um, discovered by um, uh, Western scholars and they were in an Ethiopian monastery and um, they're named after um, a saint called Abba Garima so there's the Garima region and then there's also a a saint called Abba Garima and uh, these are um, the four gospels um, but they also have a regional um, interpretation of them as well as um, in terms of artistry uh, of the illuminated manuscripts. And then we have other manuscripts that are... They, there's lots of um, uh, variations of dating right up to 18th century. Uh, so from 4th century right up to 18th century. And they are held in many, many, many monasteries across Ethiopia and Eritrea, but also that um, uh, a lot of them are held in um, uh, external universities, such as in Toronto, 
Hamburg, um, uh, in Harvard, um, and in the British Library here, and uh, also the Bodleian Library. Um, so there are some collections that are outside Ethiopian Eritrea. Now, one of the intriguing things about the um, Garima Gospels was that recently they've been dated the 4th century AD, where up to that point, before 2012, they were considered to be 11th century AD. Um, now that um, brings some really interesting, um, uh, you know, sort of thoughts and, um, you know, kind of re-examines of what we think we've got and uh, perhaps there may be older manuscripts out there mm. um, because we don't have access at the moment and, you know, Ethiopian Eritrea have suffered um, through numerous wars with each other and so there's lots of manuscripts that have been um, uh, sort of uh, lost and burnt and looted and so forth. Um, so we don't really know the, the full picture. Um, however, what we can tell is that there are um, cultural exchanges going on between these Gospels and um, the uh, Syriac and um, uh, Armenian Gospels. Um, and um, But there is a lot of regional um, input into these Gospels that make them special. Um, and that contributes to our general study of medieval or late antiquity uh, manuscripts as a whole. Um, and it's, re, you know, kind of thinking about the contribution of um, African cultures and um, societies uh, into the whole map of the Mediterranean civilizations mm. and the influence they've had. Um, so this is really interesting uh, because it sort of re-centres um, uh, what we think into an African context and then their contribution to a much larger, wider um, uh, debate about human civilization. I guess because the tendency, I suppose, with well, throughout history is to kind of see things in terms of, as you're saying, like, you have these blocks of, like, there's the Roman Empire, yes, and then there's exactly. what's going on in China, and then there's mm. what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa, but mm. actually the better way of looking at it is actually this entire web of networks that right. connect. So, yeah. you know, there is maybe not a completely, like, direct uh, link between, um, say, something on Hadrian's Wall in India, but then there's, like, various points along the way that interconnects and stuff exactly. moves all the way along there and backwards and Exactly, forwards. exactly. Um, and these uh, manuscripts are transmitted through um, an ancient language called Giz, which is a um, part of the Semitic um, uh, groups of languages. And you can see the similarities between Hebrew and, um, uh, you know, and Syriac and um, Giz. So these cultures have not, um, have not been living in isolation. Um, it's actually, they are much closer linked than what you've originally thought, but there hasn't been much study into, say, um, the contributions of many African countries mm. into a much wider um, kind of conservation conservation about um, yeah I mean know. if you go through most departments up and down the country exactly. and do classics or yeah. archaeology or whatever you wouldn't I mean, really what think. do you do about <laughs> sub Saharan Africa you exactly. don't really do anything at exactly. all I, I mean yeah. occasionally like mm. that stuff kind of comes into it maybe a little bit but yeah I can't I don't know if, for example like if you wanted to take a module or a module that focused on the mm. links with the Roman world and, mm. and other regions mm. at, at that time. I can't mm. really think of too many places I've come across that actually does that or does it to any significant yeah. extent. Absolutely. It's, and so that's the, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, really? You have people mm. that are 
leaving university, who probably having done degrees in classics mm-hmm. and ancient history, who probably still aren't really aware of the interconnectivity that That's exists. Right. So even the people at the most informal level of the spectrum, mm-hmm. like not including just the general public, mm-hmm. are, are necessarily aware of it. Mm-hmm. So that, that that does raise like some quite big questions about those kind of issues. Because if somebody like that doesn't really know or isn't really aware of it, how can you really expect somebody on the street who doesn't uh, who doesn't like have any sort of expertise in that uh, to know about it? Precisely. One of the interesting things that I found was that um, the communities themselves were empowered by uh, seeing these manuscripts in the Bodleian um, and they've never seen these manuscripts or realised how many there were Um, and you know it sort of contributed to their own sort of sense of self um, and how they saw themselves in a kind of modern context in a foreign land in a sense because um, they are from the diaspora um, uh, community who've um, through civil war ended up in the UK or in various parts of Europe so you know for people who particularly with refugees who struggle um, to try and maintain their identities and their sense of self in a new land where you know they are under a lot of scrutiny and in some cases a lot of hostility it, it sort of empowers them to know that they come from such a deep um, cultural um, heritage and history um, that can contribute to a much um, greater understanding of human civilization but also the interconnectedness you know that actually um we're not you know it's part of being human isn't it Mm -hmm. we don't live in isolation um and i think um with the current political um climate uh, of division and um divisive politics and particularly from you know say um uh, what's happening in europe um of anti-immigration policies um, these sort of projects and uh, what's going on with working with um, refugees and diaspora communities um, should uh, uh, contribute to our understanding of um, how much refugees contribute to society here um, and I just wish that can happen on, you know, at school level and the university level, um, so that um, we get a different idea of what um, being human is. Um, actually, it's a much bigger picture um, than just us and them, um, and that, you know, there are some connectivity um, that binds us all in some ways. Yeah. I think also as well, which is just makes it more interesting overall. Yeah, I mean, one of the absolutely. Things, I mean, one of the things I've just had doing doing the podcast is one of the issues I've actually faced with it is is, is diversity to some extent. Mm. Um, you know, finding people. I mean, the gender balance has been pretty easy to address, but going yes. to like diversity of different people from different backgrounds, kind of contributing to it, has been slightly harder to to tackle it in, yes. in some respects, which I think is probably quite representative of the the discipline it's as a whole. But mm. part of me is also like, mm. we're doing exactly the podcast. I'm like. It's great, like everything I've done, so like people I've spoken to so far. But there are times where I'm like, I kind of want to talk to somebody who's just like, <laughs> you want to move away from just like white male kind yeah. of every because it's just 
the, the problem is, is essentially yeah. you kind of feel like the kind of no, it's not repetitive because everyone's got a different story. But you know sure. what I mean? Like yes, variety. Yes, variety yes. is a spice of life. Exactly. There we go. That's the exactly. Way it, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it just makes things more interesting to have mm. that diversity, to have the mm. kind of those different kind of subjects, people, people from different backgrounds yeah. contributing. Mm. It makes it much more mm. interesting. And you exactly. know, the whole reason we, I suppose, we get into this is to learn about things, mm. and, and you're mm. going to learn more by mm. having a wider spectrum of exactly. people contributing. Exactly. To it. I mean, it's um, you know, if you're looking at it piece of ancient texts um it's all it's always so much more beneficial if you're looking at it from you know not just from a literary perspective but from a you know historical and um from an archaeological and from a you know so mm. actually all those um various perspectives will give you a much better um picture of the text itself you know um you can't use just one um tool or one perspective or one prism to look at a piece of text you have to bring all the different kind of sides in order to you know see the whole um and that's how i feel about um the study of um uh, classics uh is that um i mean it, it has a in a way the term classics is <laughs> slightly problematic now you know because it doesn't show the diversity of um you know to the the cultures involved in that um but um yes i mean it's there's still many people who need to be convinced that you know um studying about near eastern cultures you know like persia um, I don't know why Egypt is in the Near East, plugged into the Near East, you know, or, you know, sort of bringing in uh, Ethiopian and Eritrean antiquities in that and um, um, Syria and Lebanon. You know, it's, it sort of feels a bit exotic and it's like, well, actually, it's not, you know. <laughs> we talk about um, seeing the, the, the Mediterranean pool bringing all these different civilizations together so why can't we think about um looking beyond greece and rome because that's what they did you know um they went out and explored and brought uh, a lot of influences back and worked with that influence and changed it to something else and involved it and you know that's how cultures evolve and mm. you know um so it seems a bit narrow-minded for us to just focus on particular groups of people in a particular space in a particular time. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So tell me a little about your own journey, though, as to get into yeah. where you're at now. So how did you get into studying the, the ancient world? Oh, one of the interesting things I find is, did, did, is it something that I actually had from a very young age or is it something that kind of came along yeah, from a, so uh, out of the blue almost? Like it is, it was it? completely out of the blue. Um, up to the age of eight, um, I wasn't living in the UK. So I um, came over, well, I left Eritrea during the Civil War in the 80s, in the early 80s and then um, lived in Sudan for three years during the transitional um period of my mother trying to get me out of um, uh, Sudan and Eritrea and um, I managed to get to the UK in 89 um, and by that point um, you know I had a different kind of education and it was a sort of education that didn't have um, a steadiness to it because there were numerous breaks um, <laughs> Uh, you know, understandably, um, moving from different political um, situations, 
um, and social situations and different countries too. And then I was in a primary school in, um, in South London, uh, St um, Stephen's Primary School, uh, where I had to learn English. Uh, where else? St Stephen's Primary School? It's in Lambeth. Okay, that's it. Yeah. I, I went to primary school in St Stephen's. Oh, okay. More, it's, more it's, also it's, South East London. No, that is in Stuckwell. <laughs> yeah, it's in Stuckwell. Um, wow, that would have been <laughs> really strange. Yeah. So, um, I think it was my regular visits to the library after school that, um, you know, I just went through the children's sections of the library and then I started on the adult section. And I loved stories that um, were about, you know, sort of other civilizations. Firstly, it was the creation myth, and then I got into the Egyptians and so forth. But this was external to the schoolwork that I was doing. And then when I went to secondary school, I was engrossed in history, but um, again, you know, um, not what was happening in class, rather than reading around the subject um, in my own time. So I loved history, I loved English, but I didn't realise that you can study classics as a subject. I thought it was a hobby. It's just an interest, like reading a book. Until I went to second um, to a college, a sixth form college, and by that point I was um, doing English literature, history, and politics, um, and I ended up doing a extracurricular in Egyptian civilization, and then um, there was a it's a classical excursion to Greece in the final year before university, which I went on. And my English teacher uh, was reading us Tom Stoppard's Arcadia at that moment, and obviously there were lots of classical references and classical illusion, and that was pretty much what made up my mind when I came back from Greece, and I thought, right, I need to find out about this subject because now you can actually study it as a subject yeah. <laughs> you know so I uh, decided to uh, apply to universities um, for classics rather than law which was the what I was originally going to do um, and it was I had an interview in Birmingham actually Birmingham University and um, I didn't really know very much about Homer you know and I quickly read um, I think it was the it was either the Iliad or the Odyssey, and I pretended to have read the other, <laughs> both of them. <laughs> and, I, and they still gave me a place. I thought, oh, they should, surely they would have seen through it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have any classical, uh, you know, background, and uh, so I had to wig it. <laughs> but then I ended up in Swansea, um, where I stayed for um, not just for my education, but just to um, set up um, home there. For 15 years and in and out of working in different jobs and then I always came back to classics and to the classics fa- um, department in Swansea um, and uh, you know I found a real an amazing mentor um, who became my supervisor um, for my undergraduate my MA my PhD um, and who kept convincing me to do these things rather than go off into you know, the outside world. Well, I did work throughout, but um, he just made the case to just constantly push me because I'd never really been pushed. And so I had to start um, English and Latin, um, English and Latin, Greek and Latin from scratch, which is very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that was uh, I suppose I had to do everything through translation so that was my um, journey into classics and then I as I was starting my PhD I got a, a, a job in the classics faculty uh, which was to um, uh, lead on the classics outreach program and I thought brilliant you know I've got some access background uh, in terms of all the different jobs I did with you know sort of groups on um, you know sort of marginalized groups in society and then obviously by that point I had a master's in classics and um, yeah so they took me on and I think that really was quite special because I've never been to Oxford um, or Cambridge and it was a completely different world and mm. you know they came across people who've been doing Greek and Latin since they were five you know <laughs> so uh, that was quite intimidating but at the same time it's so stimulating yeah. it's incredible and I had you know made friends within the faculty who really supported me and you know mentored me um, and you know and then it felt great just sort of convincing um, kids to really think about this subject um, you know those who were not used to the subject because I can speak from my own background and experiences um, so yeah yeah no, I think um, I think outreach is probably one of the most rewarding aspects of studying the ancient world although yes. do, do you feel that the outreach is only now starting to really get the attention that it deserves I know there's been discussion about mm. you know, is, has outreach, is it valued enough in this mm. subject, do you mm. think there's still mm. still some way to go for it to really be appreciated for what it, what it, what it is and the, the positive impact that it has? I think uh, when the um, increase of fees went up for universities there, were, there was the introduction of the access agreement um, so if you were going to charge 9,000 pounds um, for undergraduate um, fees then you needed to um, provide a robust access agreement to show that you're spending uh, a certain amount of your budget to encourage those from um, disadvantaged backgrounds um, and to try and make the university a bit more diverse and so there was this governmental change shift which you know in some respect I think it needed to happen in primary and secondary schools too and that in some ways universities were under pressure mm. to fix a system that was kind of broken before uh, it got to them. And so there was an enormous pressure um, for the universities and in some cases rightly so but it wasn't taken into consideration that there were failures at a primary and secondary school um, uh, level. And so there were governmental policy coming in to commit universities into you know producing robust access um, programs um, and and I suppose we are now in the second phase of really of um, finding value um, instead of being told that you need to do it but actually seeing value in the thing that we are doing it mm. um, so um, I think there's a shift now of universities um, really investing um, their time and resources into providing a long-term strategic plan for access and outreach and not just, oh, we'll go and do a talk in that school and then that'll be it, or our undergraduates can go and 
do this bit, fun bit, and then that'll be it. Actually, it's more sort of culture change uh, in a school environment um, that leads to um, kids really thinking about subjects, particularly like classics, to pursue at um, university level. So I think there's been a, a shift, definitely, in the mindset that um, outreach and access is no longer something that you just are told to do by government or have to do by your department um, but actually it has a value um, and that um, your discipline can really benefit from it um, because the future impact will be that you know you've got um, a diverse researchers at the end of that so yeah do you do you see at the moment um, the subject becoming more diverse and people take it? I mean, you're saying like here at the CA, you feel mm. like there's a different kind of energy now that yeah. it's kind of mo- mm. moving in the right direction. But mm. Do you feel at the moment that's becoming kind of mm. manifest? I mean, as you were saying, like when you were giving the talk the other day, you look mm. out at the audiences it's just, at the event, it's just like, yeah. like almost entirely white. Like I see that as well. Like mm. I've taught modules where mm. I've had like a hundred people, yeah. and then when you stand there and you look out, you're just yeah. like, holy crap! Like, yeah. like you re- it really hits home. <laughs> yes, like, because you can yeah. see. I mean, when you've got 100 people, you've yes. got 100% like, exactly. you, can, you can work things yeah. out of percentage yeah. and you're like, wow. Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and I mean, yeah, it, mm. to me at the moment, like, mm. I, I, I get the sense of maybe very, very gradual change. I but, think, yeah, I, think um, I was talking to a friend yesterday and saying, wow, it really hit home that there's still a lot of work to do. Mm. Um, And it may take some time, but I think we will get there. I find, you know, that I have to admit that sometimes that could be in an echo chamber. Um, You know, when I am on Twitter or um, Facebook, that um, there's lots of people like me on there and uh, women and, you know, sort of uh, really progressive views and opinions. And I think, oh, fantastic. Yay, classics. Mm-hmm. Woof, woof, woof. And then <laughs> you go to a room like Thursday and you think, oh, OK, yeah. maybe maybe we still need to do some change here. But I think um, that's the thought of myself of being an echo chamber um, and not actually saying well you know it's still a great effort to change something as huge um, as as classics but also changing the infrastructure the systems I work in Oxford and that in itself is <laughs> a lot of institutional um, uh, problems um, but it also has a, a lot of willingness um, and you know to uh, to change but with an institution like that it will take a really long time to change the system and change the infrastructure and it's the same with the discipline you know it will take some time however what we need to do is to not um, be uh, divisive in our community of you know amongst classists um, and just see the long-term goal the big you know the, the sort of future goal and not get caught up with um, different factions. And there, there are complexities and there are nuances, but there is still the end game, which is um, a progressive discipline. Mm. Um, and so we can only do that if we work together. And that means, you know, bringing people with us, with those who have been from, you know, to uh, have had alternative views or from, you know, sort of traditional stances. Um, so that's the only way that it could move forward is that if we can um, come together as a community. Now that will change as time goes on, but it's not going to change overnight. No. Mm. Yeah. I mean, because one of the things like 
bigger is that there's there's that kind of issue that it's um you might say a kind of sense of finding your place like it's yeah. It can be very easy for I mean, like somebody like me walks into a room and it's just like, oh, this is this already like, yeah, like, yeah, excellent. Like, it yes. doesn't, it doesn't. But when you're, yeah. it's like uh, when I was talking to other people before, mm. it's that sense of like when you walk into a room and you look mm. around and you think there's not many people here that look like mm. me, particularly if you're an undergraduate. I mean, that Absolutely. must be very difficult. And and, yeah. it, and there is that kind of sense of you're thinking. Mm. You, really, from the off, I mean, I would imagine like even on just a subconscious level, you are probably thinking like the odds of me making it like in terms of a career here are all much steeper than it would be for other people here because yeah. you just you're looking at the people teaching you you're looking mm-hmm. at the people on tv that mm-hmm. are presenting tv programs mm-hmm. on it etc etc mm-hmm. and you're just like where's my place in this yeah. i can just imagine that it must yeah. be very very mm-hmm. intimidating in some respects yes and i i don't think um some people realize um how difficult that could be um for other um people um, or know the importance of um, visuality, you know, that actually having, you know, somebody being visible can be incredibly encouraging, you mm. know. Uh, so if I see, uh, you know, a, um, a black person uh, who is teaching, you know, Cicero, I mean, I don't like Cicero, but, <laughs> <laughs> but in a sense I would be, you know, a bit more... Sort of, um, I would change my attitude towards Cicero, I guess, <laughs> just because you know there is somebody who looks like me who is in a kind of authoritative teacher position, mm. and, and without even saying anything, can already change my mind, yeah. you know, and make me feel comfortable and less intimidated, regardless of whether the audience is, you know, kind of white, but actually seeing that one person in a kind of authoritative position, and that's. That's, I think we need, when I say talking about the system, it's also about, you know, sort of having more diverse people on a kind of professorship level, um, on a senior management level. There's more people who are representative of the society mm. um, and not just about the undergraduates because what happens is that you can get more undergraduates of colour and gender and if they see people who look like them at the top. I think it's also just it's just a way of keeping the subject relevant. Um, yeah, you know, that's exactly. The, I think it's kind of like going back to what I was saying earlier yeah. about varying up, like just in terms of the, what well, thinking about doing doing a podcast. It's like I think you run the risk of stagnation yes. if you don't you don't yes. um, you know push to try and make it more diverse. Yes, I think I mean there's kind of like more more, broad, more broader views on a lot of stuff that's going on at the moment. Like I feel like. There are people that want to put the brakes on things. Mm-hmm. Like the, the world is changing at mm-hmm. a very rapidly pace, mm-hmm. rapid pace, and mm-hmm. people want to stop things changing so quickly. But I think re- realistically, you've just got to accept the fact that things are that's going to happen. You can't stop it. You, the, can, you can try and slow it down, yeah. but that's not going to stop mm-hmm. it from happening. And I think mm-hmm. if you want to try and just mm-hmm. be like, no, this is what we've got. We're going to keep it this way because this is the way it's worked in the past. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be, you know, 20 years down the line, that's going to have, mm. probably have quite a negative impact. Like, mm. you need to keep, you want the subject to keep evolving, mm. I think is maybe the best way of putting it. Mm. And and that's, and that can only be a good thing, I think, as well. Yeah, and I think it just, to me, seems very bizarre um, that we in the modern age would want to keep things still when we look back at the ancients and see the ebbs and flows, mm. you know, and it just seems a bit bizarre that. You are studying something that has changed so much 
thousand CPUs. There's the high points, the low points, the various points. And yet, from a modern perspective, you want to keep things still here mm-hmm. at this present time, which doesn't make sense. It's like you need to take in what you're actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> More seriously, yeah. 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 Oh, okay talking about this really overall in terms of things that you, you know, that could change we'd like to see develop but mm. I mean do you have any other kind of ideas not just in terms of subject but also perhaps research wise about any sort of avenues that need exploring do you think in the future or where you'd like to see the subject go I mean we did talk about I suppose quite generally anyway but. yes I th- <laughs> there's so many I mean you know if you look at the panels in the CA um, and uh, FIAC, um, you have seen the kind of global classics, the exploration of, um, you know, sort of uh, outside, how classics um, has informed uh, other cultures outside the European, you know, sort of pool. Um, I was intrigued by the sort of Ovid in China um, or the, um, there's a panel I think tomorrow, uh, a global classics panel, which is um, sort of how classics has informed modern Japan, um, which seems really, really intriguing. I was at, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I would say, um, a comparative literature conference, classics and comparative literature, and that was so inspiring. You had people who were taking angles from New Zealand culture and heritage and seeing the uh, similarities of the travelling myth, you know, sort of Heracles in particular, um, and Mary culture, um, you know, there were sort of how China was accessing Roman poetry through the medium of French translation, which, you know, in itself is just a whole mind blow. Uh, and, you know, classics in South America and Mexico during the um, 14th and 15th century sort of transmitted through um, uh, Latin and the, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, Catholic uh, religion. And then there were, you know, from East Europe and how classics has impacted um, uh, communism and Russia and, you know, and it's just astounding mm-hmm. of the diversity of the subject and how people have interpreted it. And there's a panel tomorrow on classics in the Caribbean, how um, these myths again travel, you know, and how they are interpreted in, in African countries as well as in the Caribbean. So I feel like there is so much to be done. Um, there's one of my friends exploring... Um, uh, one of the research projects doing hip hop and classics. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh man, that is such an interesting subject. I, yeah, I, yeah. I think get back to this. I heard a song yeah. not too long ago. It was, uh, yeah, it was a rap for somebody released a while ago that, that featured them talking about Troy and Aeneas, yeah. and I can't remember who it was. Is it a Carla? It, it might Carla? be. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like Kate Tempest and Akala who've um, obviously started using the world of classics um, in their own work you know, in spoken poetry um, but again also in um, uh, hip hop, uh, one of the artists um, MF Doom yeah, you should check him out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
definitely. <laughs> sounds, sounds like another guest I need on the podcast. Yeah. As well. <laughs> oh, he's got this whole um, uh, persona and alter ego. Uh, his alter ego is a. Um, it's a bit like a Marvel character, actually. Yeah. So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so if you were a classicist and listened to his music, you will get the classical references. But I doubt if hip-hop um, fans who weren't classics-minded would have got the classics references. Um, but I suppose if they hear it, they might go yeah. away and discover it. That's yeah, the thing. It's exactly. Kind of, you yeah. talk about access, there's different ways of uh, bringing people Exactly, in, you know? and, and I think that's the beauty about classics, is that you can, it can twist and turn and uh, influence um, uh, such a uh, in a in such a myriad of ways, you know, whether it's music or art or you know um, uh, uh, sort of literature or science fiction. It's just it's so diverse, and that's why I feel like why do we try and hold on to it into this little um, prison of you know the it's only this, it's only that, um, rather than saying actually it could contribute to so much more mm-hmm. um, and impact you know um, society in different ways and you can and everybody can get a pleasure out of it you know mm-hmm. not yeah. just researchers in you know mm-hmm. uh, in certain universities yeah I suppose it is we say I mean probably the best way of saying this type of conversation is the word accessibility is yeah, perhaps, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely see, yeah because yeah, it can yeah. appeal to yeah I should say just by anybody but yeah. it, it's I think it depends on how you frame it exactly uh, exactly and whether you study in translation or you use a piece of it in your poetry or you know isn't that our job to make it accessible to people so mm. they can enjoy it you know so, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. So, um, sort of moving towards wrapping up now, mm-hmm. um, do you have anything at all that you want to you want to advertise at all? Oh, I mean, you were saying you had, yes. obviously you had the, the yeah. manuscript project. Yes. I saw you had the publications for yes. that as well. So um, yeah, so I, I work on two separate projects actually. There's the Classics Communities Project, which is an access um, project with the Faculty of Classics of Oxford, Cambridge, and the Iris Project. Um, and it's trying to get um, Greek and Latin into primary schools and also secondary schools. Um, and we've worked with um, UK universities. Um, we've done a number of teacher training workshops across the UK. Um, we've had um, two international conferences, Oxford and Cambridge. And then uh, we had a book launch uh, uh, earlier this year. Um, so um, our publication is Forward with Classics, uh, co-edited by uh, myself, Arlene Holmes-Henderson and Steve Hunt. Um, and then there is the um, Ethiopian Eritrean um, project and there's two um, publications that have come out. So one is on the Garima Gospels, uh, written by Ju- the late Judith McKenzie. She passed away a month ago. Um, and um, the second one is the Treasures of... Um, uh, Ethiopian Eritrea um, held in the Bodleian Library which is a catalogue of the manuscripts in the library and of course um, there is the event um, uh, which is uh, the opening display um, the dis- well should I say the opening of a display that is uh, co-curated by Ethiopian Eritrean um, community members um, which starts on the 27th of July and will be going on until I think August and September okay. so, Is that um, in Oxford? Yeah, that will be in, in Oxford in the Western Library Okay, cool yeah, yeah. Um, And if people want to find you on Twitter and yeah, yeah. social media uh, I'm, fr- 
<laughs> Do you know that's what been one of the uh, opening greetings? So it's like, oh, I follow you on Twitter at this conference. It's like everybody's on Twitter. There is a and, weird yeah, like, relationship there with right? Twitter thing. Like, yeah. I, I follow people, they yeah, follow me, and exactly. I see them. And then you see them in person and you think, Oh, okay. Exactly. It really makes you think. Okay, there is, um, you know, a different space going on here. You know, yeah. on the platform, it's as if you know each other really, really well, and then when you meet in reality, it's like, whoa, we're strangers. You yeah. know, so it's just so. I suppose it's actually something that we didn't really talk about in terms yeah. of outreach was the importance of social media. Yes. Well. Absolutely. When you talk about accessibility and how things have changed through social media, I mean, there are some negative aspects of oh, social God, yeah. media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's been fantastic for transmitting, you know, yeah. the classics world into uh, the World Forum. It's mm. been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, building up those networks. Exactly. And getting exactly. different people involved. No, it does. Yeah. It has a really good appeal. I sometimes yeah. almost feel like we need to. Yeah. Maybe we need to create a social media platform for yeah. classicists and ancient historians. So yeah. Yeah. sometimes you can enjoy that stuff without having mm. to go on Twitter and see like the news updates and yes. everything else yes. going on. As Absolutely. Well. Yeah. There also needs. Um, I think there are n- now. I suppose better collaboration between, say, classicists and medievalists and modern historians than there has been in the past of where they see themselves in different camps mm, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and actually you know it's, it's quite fruitful if you bring those disciplines together particularly if you're working on a project and then also bringing in social scientists and the scientists in with the um, technology and so forth so I mean one of the things is um, VR virtual reality yeah, which is yeah, yeah. bringing the classics world it yeah. alive you know well, yeah, so I had somebody on the podcast who works doing VR yeah. um, she's made a, a VR Experience of the Carbomythorium and Hadrian's yeah. Wall. So you wow. you hold the two things, you put the headset yes. on, and then you hold things in your hand. Yes. You pick up a torch. Yes. And, yes. and I was like, yes. when, when it was first explained to me, I was like, yes. okay. And then yes. I put it on, and I was like, oh my god! Like, it's like uh, this is so strange. Isn't like, it? Um, they also, I think, um, there's now museums who are producing augmented reality mm. sort of. Um, I think they're uh, on your. You can use it on your I, um, iPad or. Um, uh, and go round the museums, and you put it on an object, and it gives you a 3D, and you know, so you can twist and turn and yeah. see. It. Oh, it's just incredible! It's yeah. just like wow! It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy how like technology is going to probably revolutionise exactly. the subject. Exactly. Absolutely. Like, well, I say in the next few years it's doing it, it now, but yeah. God, yeah, it's going to be a very yeah. different landscape in 10, 20 years' time. Exactly, and I think that's um, the, again the beauty of classics is that it could be multidisciplinary, but also. Um, you know, kind of work with modern technology to keep it um, relevant mm. as well to the modern age. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, I know. Uh, Fantastic. Um, one last question. Yes. Um, you mentioned earlier just going quickly back around to skateboarding. <laughs> when you mentioned the music, what, what bands did you have in mind? Oh, crikey. Uh, <laughs> what bands did I have in mind when I mentioned skateboarding? <laughs> I was just wondering because when I used to play Tony Hawk's, we used to it used to be all about the soundtracks on it as yeah. well. Okay, do I step in here? You can say yeah, you can step in if you want. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> step. Mainly help. Notable bands to mention in skateboarding. Yes. Um, Black Flag. Okay. Uh, hardcore punk band, Beastie Boys. Oh yes, yes the Beastie yes. Boys. That's yes. it. Nineties era, just it's lots of hip hop, lots of golden era hip hop. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, um, Dinosaur Junior, 
and then Atomic Dustbin, some good old British kind of indie bands in the 90s. Anything thrash, anything... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, get, to get the, uh, the adrenaline pumping. Yeah, yeah. Would Rancid come into that as well? Would Rancid be included in that? Rancid. Rancid, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was more in the kind of hip-hop camp uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. music for skateboarding. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, as we were saying earlier, um, you know, May's interest in skateboarding is it, it, just coming about now. She's finished her PhD. Um, initially, when she first met me about three, two years ago, thank you, um, <laughs> uh, she was like, what's this skateboarding nonsense all about? And now she has discovered the rich culture. <laughs> uh, but also, I have to say, I am discovering my fascination with ancient history. And it's making me understand the modern world in a whole different way. So, yeah, these things uh, aren't necessarily completely isolated from one another. Mm. Impact. Impact. So, watch this space for a project or crossover between Oh, I really want to do that. Classics of skateboarding. There we go. Absolutely. That's the next project. Yeah, yeah. Come back on the podcast when that gets going. Yeah, well, I ended up in a hospital or something (laughs) (laughs) with a broken collarbone. Then you have plenty of time to record. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. That was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.